Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together. So uh, a picture is going to come up on the screen, and uh, a lot of you probably aren't going to have a good idea what this is. It, it maybe looks like something from the set of a Star Wars movie, maybe something that George Lucas conjured up. Looks like something otherworldly a little bit. But what this is, is actually this is a picture to the entrance of Yucca Mountain. Uh, and if you haven't heard of Yucca Mountain, I grew up out in Nevada, and in, in Nevada, everyone's heard of Yucca Mountain. Yucca Mountain is 90 miles outside of Las Vegas, where I grew up and where I lived at. And Yucca Mountain was where the government back in the 80s decided, we're going to store all our nuclear waste in Yucca Mountain. It's all going to go there. So we're going to invest tens of billions of dollars over the next couple of decades, and we're going to build tunnels. We're going to burrow deep down so that we can create almost an impenetrable environment to store nuclear waste. And the thing about Yucca Mountain is it's had countless numbers of studies and research and geological surveys done on it so that it would withstand massive earthquakes. It would withstand water movements. It would withstand almost anything, even a nuclear attack, and nothing would happen to the nuclear waste that was inside of it. And so it's designed so that theoretically, hypothetically speaking, nuclear waste could be in there for up to 10,000 years without leaking, without getting out. Uh, my stepdad, he worked out there, so I got the privilege of going out there one day, and it was just incredible to see the lengths, the depths, the investment they made to make this place secure. That they realized how dangerous, how deadly, how toxic something like nuclear waste really is, and that if you're going to store it and it has a shelf life of up to 10,000 years while it's still radioactive, you've got to go above and beyond to secure it, to quarantine it. And I remember driving back after taking a tour and seeing all the tunnels and all they dug miles down and miles across and all throughout there and what they were doing to, to make it the most safe they could be. And I said, do you think it will work? I mean, 10,000 years, that's a long time to keep something from leaking out, right? I said, do you think it'll hold up? And he said, well, what we have found through geological studies, through history, through research, is that toxic things have a way of leaking out. Toxic things, they just, they find a way, especially given enough time. Now, if we were talking two days, maybe the toxic things stay stored, but give it enough time, they find a way to just kind of seep out. So they were worried about it getting into the water supply, or they worried about getting into the dirt or into the atmosphere, something of that nature. And that is true, I think, in many ways for, for our lives. Like, there are toxic things that you and I all encounter. In fact, one of the conditions, one of the realities of being in community, of being in fellowship with other people is eventually you're going to have toxic moments. Someone's going to emotionally slash you. Someone's going to abandon you. Someone's going to betray you. Someone's going to let you down. Someone's going to hurt you. And what do you do with that? What do you do with that hurt, with that pain, with that loss, with that sorrow? Any moment that you spend inside community, you're not far away, whether this is a marriage, a family, a workplace, a church, from having one of those conflict moments. They come fast and heavy. It's inevitable that in this life, you'll have those moments when you're sinned against where hurt happens. And too often, even in the church, the church doesn't testify to the forgiving power of Jesus Christ, but rather lets division sink in. And what festers as a wound begins to seep out into all sorts of other places. 
And I would argue, if you think about it too, like we, we know from John 13, Jesus paints this incredible picture to his disciples that the, the world is watching. The world gets to stand in the jury box and decide whether you church, you Christian are the real deal by the way you love one another. Is there true love? Do you honestly love one another? So if love is the fuel for the church, I would argue that forgiveness is the lubrication because you give something enough time, enough gears to cause friction and tension over time, you'll have issues. And forgiveness is that lubrication. Without that, often the church divides, often families divide, often relationships are ruined. Often us personally, we are destroyed due to a spirit of unforgiveness. This stuff is deadly serious. This stuff is at the core of what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, we're gonna look at a passage today where he says some pretty intense radical things about this very subject. So three things I wanna do this morning. I wanna look first at why we should forgive, the why. Second, I wanna look at what happens if we don't forgive. And the third, close with just a few comments on how we begin to forgive. So if you wanna follow along, I'm actually gonna start this morning in Matthew 18, verse 21. So you can turn there or it'll be up on the screen for you. But I'm gonna start in Matthew 18. And Matthew 18 is one of those chapters of the Bible. It's just, it's heavy. I mean, it's, it's gritty. It's like dirt underneath the fingernails type Bible stuff. It's not abstract, deep theology, but it's rather it hits you right in the pavement of life. He's talking about how to, how to know con, handle conflict with brothers and sisters. He's talking about what happens when someone sins against you. He's talking about what happens when churches have discipline issues and that goes sideways. Jesus is giving this long discourse about all these relational situations. And Peter, we always love Peter, right? What I love about Peter is he sometimes gets a bad rap, but he's probably the guy that just says what everyone else is thinking. You know, he just raises his hand. And so Jesus finishes his talk on relational problems and how to go about those things. And Peter comes up and he has an additional question for Jesus. And what I love about this is you, you can just imagine for Peter, this isn't abstract, abstract the, theoretical theology. This isn't just like, hey, let's just do church of the mind hypothetical. He's probably wrestling with this very reality. Because as I said, if you live life long enough in community and with other people and in a family and in a workplace, you are gonna have moments where someone sins against you. So what does Peter do? Peter comes up and he says to Jesus, starting in verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Oh, Peter, so beautiful, Peter. What I love about Peter is Peter thinks he's, he thinks he's being quite magnanimous. He thinks he's being very gracious. Hey, seven, just imagine if someone like rammed into your car seven times over and over and over. I bet on like the third time you would be, you know, you'd be losing it. You'd be flipping out. So Peter's already saying, I'll go big. I'll, I'll go grandiose seven times. Surely, Jesus, that would be enough. But Jesus tells a story that reveals inside of Peter's very question, there's a false belief and assumption about forgiveness. Inside of it, when Peter says, how many times shall I forgive? What he's believing, what he's assuming is that forgiveness is for the person that offended you. That forgiveness is primarily to the benefit of the person who wronged you. That forgiveness is not, that it's a gift in some ways. Hey, they wronged me and I'm gonna go ahead and let them off the hook. That you're giving them a gift. That's Peter's assumption that it's me giving a gift to the person 
who's offended. And we all live like that in some ways. Inside of all of our unforgiveness, inside that assumption is a posture, is a heart belief that you and I both walk around with, myself included, of they owe me. They owe me. That's what it means to say, I need to forgive this person. Like, they owe me. They took something from me. They took my reputation. They took love. They took friendship. Maybe they took possessions. They took my childhood. They took my marriage. They took my safety. They took my security. They took my family. This is heavy stuff. This is weighty stuff. That's why you, we, I mean, behind all hurt and pain, when we feel that moment of they owe me, what we're really wrestling with is, is this sense of, of debt. This person has a debt to me. They've wronged me. And in that moment, you've now entered into a debt-debtor relationship. You have a debt and I'm your debtor. And what you do in this moment too, in that assumption that Peter's wrestling with, is that I am now your judge. I'll decide when you've paid it off as well. I'll decide what penance looks like. I'll decide what retribution looks like. And I'll decide when you're really sorry. I'll be the judge of that. And it's so subjective, isn't it? We find ourselves waiting for maybe this moment of groveling or this person coming back in total shame or humiliation or maybe waiting for that hug for mom and dad. And it's so subjective. That's why we even use phrases like, you owe me an apology. That's debt-debtor relationship. And in that is the assumption that if I forgive you, I'm actually doing you a favor and also a fear that I'm letting you off the hook. And what happens, I don't know about you, maybe this is just me being real sinful, but I'm gonna do confession time anyways. Some of you may relate to me. When that situation, when that season, when that experience, when that person comes to your mind, it evokes, it brings back up a lot of anger, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. And sometimes what do you do? You, you're building your case. You're remembering. And as you remember, you find yourself a little bit more agitated of, man, if, if anyone heard this case, they would know I was right. And you start, here's what we all start doing. We start having those imaginary conversations. Oh gosh, if I could just talk to them. Oh gosh, I have the perfect thing I'd want to say to them. I know exactly how I'd want to phrase it. And here's where we get really wicked in our, in our fantasy where we're building our case. We actually, we want there to be a big group of people around so they can hear, they can hear our grievances and they can sit there and go like, mm-hmm, yep, totally justified. We want that. There's something about us that wants that. And Peter, Peter has a little bit of that in him because it's so worldly. It's so natural for us in a world where we live often by a different ethic than what Jesus commands. So what does Jesus do? What I love about Jesus is he does what he always does. He begins to tell a story. And in that story, he wants us often to begin to see ourselves. So here's what Jesus does, starting in verse 20, says, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So this king, and maybe it's tax season. He's like, I got to get all my financials in order. I'm looking at all my outstanding accounts. I'm going to call this guy forward. He owes me a massive debt. So it says 10,000 talents. You know how much 10,000 talents is? I did the math for you. Here's what it is. 
a lot. It's a lot. It tra- that's the Greek, a lot. So what, what it's meant to convey, 10,000 talents, is, is it's trillions. It's more than you would ever be able to pay back. His debt is insurmountable. So what does the king do? The king's a good businessman. He realizes, I made a foolish bet. I made a foolish investment. I loaned money to this guy. He's obviously not going to pay me back. I'm just going to cut my losses. I just cut, cut my losses. Just sell them. Just sell him, his kids, his wife, whatever we can get, we can get, and we'll just cut our losses and move on. I'm glad we don't live in that culture, right? But he, he's like, just, just get rid of them. Just call it a day. So what does this servant do? Here's what the, the servant says in verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees. So he's starting in the right place. He's realizing that his situation is hopeless, or so we think, imploring him. So he's begging, he's begging this king, have patience with me, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Okay, so what we see here is the servant doesn't have a very good grasp on in how insurmountable his debt is. He's struggling, he's wrestling to realize just how much trouble he's actually in because his only bargaining chip, notice his only bargaining chip there is to say, have patience. He's asking for time. Time is not his problem, okay? If he had 80 years, if he had 200 years, if he had 500 years, this is a debt he can't pay back, but yet he's delusional enough to not realize just how grand, how big, how insurmountable his debt really is. That should ring home to some of us, right? Sometimes how we miss just how big our debt is before God, how insurmountable it really is. And yet we try to pay him back as if time was our biggest problem, as if we could atone and bring penance for what you and I have done to a holy, infinite, loving God. <laughs> and, and verse 27, and this is, this is the key. And out of pity for him, that word pity there also translates as mercy. Out of mercy for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Forgave him the debt. NIV uses the phrase there to cancel the debt. To cancel the debt. Now here's the thing. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care if you're like Warren Buffett, Bill Gates rich. Billions and trillions of dollars is is a lot. You're going to feel that. So when this king cancels a debt, an insurmountable debt of millions and millions and billions of dollars, he's absorbing that. He's taking on the loss. He feels that loss. But yet what, 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 what compels him to feel that loss? Mercy. Mercy. Because of his mercy... He's willing to absorb the loss for someone who otherwise would have been hopeless without any possibility of making payment. Verse 28, but when the same servant, so this guy, he gets released of the biggest debt imaginable that he could never pay back. He gets sent out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay me what you owe. So here's the deal. You have just received the best forgiveness blessing in your entire life. Someone's forgiving you of a billion dollar debt. Somewhere along the line, that should translate from, I have received so much. How could I not be merciful to others? But yet there's a kink in the hose of this guy's heart where the mercy that he's received terminates and stops on him and doesn't travel to those he's in relationship with. He's failed to grasp just how severe his debt is. 
So what does he do? He finds someone who owes him 100 denarii. 100 denarii is about three months wages. It's about three months wages, which that hurts. I mean, if any of us lost three months wages, we'd feel that. But yet you could theoretically pay that back. You could get on a payment plan. You could Dave Ramsey that. I mean, you could make payment for three months salary. It, it would hurt, but you could do it. But this guy has no mercy, does he? Pay me what you owe. Verse 29, the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. His friends are like, are you out of your mind? Do you realize that you were just forgiven millions and billions and trillions of dollars of debt and you're gonna hold this guy hostage? You're not gonna forgive him? There's a kink in the hose of your heart that doesn't realize just how, what, what a terrible situation you were in and how much you have been forgiven. So no wonder they're distressed. So what do they do? In verse 32, then his master summoned him after the servants came and told him and said to him, you wicked servant. And truly, isn't, it, isn't this wicked? We're all nodding our heads. Going, yes, of course that's wicked. Of course this guy's unmerciful. And the king says to him, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You got to think at this moment, Peter's like, gosh, this story did not go the way I thought. I was just looking for a nice round number. And all of a sudden you're telling me I'm the wicked servant. He's like, sorry, I asked Jesus. <laughs> Just imagine that for Peter. Because what, what Jesus is saying is that there is no limit. There is no extent to which forgiveness ends for those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I, we have to realize that, that Jesus demands for us to see the absurdity of Christians not being willing to forgive because of how much we have been forgiven. This is gospel amnesia for us to not forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. It is gospel amnesia for us not to forgive. We have forgotten. There has been a kink in the hose between what God has done for us and what we then are willing to do for those who have sinned against us. I mean, the, the cross has to remain as big and wide in our minds and in our hearts for us to continue to realize just the extent, the love, the magnitude, the cost of our forgiveness. Christian, it is because we linger, we stop, and we look upon the cross over and over and realize the greatness of our King Jesus, that he would die for you and me so that we would have forgiveness that then empowers us to have that same posture and to look upon the people in our life in that same way. I think about um, in my own life when I've had those moments where it just feels like, God, how do I do that though? How does that actually come about? Because I hear what you're saying. I know what you're talking about. But deep down inside me, I want revenge. I want vengeance. But yet our, our God is countercultural, isn't he? Our God is supernatural. He's not natural like the flesh is. The church is meant to be a city on a hill. We're in our love, our peace, our patience, 
our gentleness, our kindness, our self-control, our forgiveness, our love for one another, the watching world goes around and says, there's something countercultural about you guys, something altogether distinct and unique about who you worship. Uh, it's interesting to me to often watch the most popular movies that come out of Hollywood and the, the deep narrative truths and even desires that they speak to. And what's very common, especially among action movies, is that the, the, the hero is often quite vengeful. He, he, he's often gonna go out and get revenge for those who have done all the wrong things or all the people that have wronged him. And, and, and you and I, we have to admit, we kind of like that. We like to watch the vengeful hero. But yet our hero, he turned the other cheek. Our hero forgives people while he's being killed. Our hero loves his enemies. This is countercultural, isn't it? Verse 35, um, I'm glad Jesus says it because I don't know if I could say it. So we'll just let him say it. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see, Jesus speaks of these, these hard truths, these hard realities, that if we're really able to grasp just how much we've been forgiven, it becomes a natural outflow and consequence that we begin to forgive those around us. It's axiomatic. Verse 35, is, as, 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 as you think about that, what Jesus is really saying is, even in the Lord's Prayer where it says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, what you're seeing is there is almost like two pedals on a bike, a correlation between the two. We realize how much God has forgiven our sins. We realize how great God has been to us. We realize the magnitude and the, the size of the cross and the, the costliness of his blood. And as we do, that overwhelms us to be able to forgive those around us and to extend grace and mercy. And then we see ourselves more clearly in how much we need forgiveness from God. And as we see just what a broken sinner we are and how much we need forgiveness, we're able to offer that forgiveness to others. And that is the natural pattern and rhythm of the Christian believer. But here's the truth. In life, as that's going on, there then comes those moments where something painful happens something altogether horrific happens where someone grievously wounds you and there's something inside of us where we screech back on those pedals and apply the brake. We say, God, I know the cross is that big. I know what you've done for me. I see that, but this is different. How can I forgive them? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about the very reality that the, the Christian believer is to be one who always forgives. This is what he says. It's just a natural outpouring it means that, that the proof that you and I are forgiven is that we forgive others. There's proof in our willingness to forgive others. If we think that our sins are forgiven by God and we refuse to forgive somebody else, we are making a mistake. We have never been forgiven. The man who knows he has been forgiven only in and through the shed blood of Christ is a man who must forgive others. He cannot help himself if we really know Christ as our savior, our hearts are broken and cannot be hard and we cannot refuse forgiveness. If you are refusing forgiveness to anybody, I suggest that you have never been forgiven. I say to the glory of God and in utter humility that whenever I see myself before God and realize something of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I'm ready to forgive anybody for anything. I cannot withhold it. 
I do not even want to withhold it. When we begin to meditate and linger and sit at the foot of the cross and realize what God has done for us, it not only creates this white knuckling, like when you tell a five-year-old to say, I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry. You have to grit your teeth. But there's a want to, don't miss that. The heart's changed. The, heart, the, the kink in the hose is, is let go and, and the mercy that you've received begins to flow freely into those around you. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. And I'll say for a lot of you in this room, the inexcusable has occurred in your life. But it means we forgive the inexcusable because he has forgiven the inexcusable in us. What I love about this is just days later, Jesus is on his way to Calvary. Where he'll hang upon a cross and at the cross, you and I lost all of our rights not to forgive as all of our sin, all of our suffering, all of our past, all of our mistakes were put upon him and yet he extended forgiveness to us. All of our yeah buts. I know even as I'm talking right now, there's a lot of us in this room that our inner lawyers getting really loud I'm like, yeah, but yeah, but if you knew my story, my situation, my thing. But at the cross, there's this, there's this cosmic reality where it spans everything that's ever happened and offers a cosmic redemption that can incorporate anything that's ever happened to any of us. In those moments, though, I want to be really clear, and I want to come back to verse 34. I intentionally skipped over it. What happens when we don't? What happens when we don't? Well, Jesus says something that it sounds like at first, is he, being, is he being a little over the top? Is he being hyperbolic? Is he speaking about this in an eternal sense? This is what he says in verse 34. And in anger, after the servant is, is being dealt with by the king, and in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So our unmerciful, wicked servant is thrown into jail. He's imprisoned for his lack of forgiveness. And, and also another translation uses the word that he'll be tormented, tortured while he's imprisoned. And so, so what does that mean? Is, is he speaking of hell? Well, he's not actually. This imprisonment and these tormentors actually play out in our lives here and now. Jesus' words in verse 34 are often the functional realities for many people. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, you begin to experience the tormentors and the prison of an unforgiving spirit and heart. Turn to Ephesians 4 with me that we read a couple minutes ago. And Paul picks up on this very thing, telling us what some of those very tormentors are. Because here's the reality of it. When we hold a grudge, when we hold on to our bitterness, when we hold on to our unforgiving spirit, they actually hold on to us. We think we're holding them, but they're actually constricting and confining us. I, I do want to say this though, because this is heavy. Um, if I was to sit down and have coffee with you and to hear your story, and I've sat down and had meals with many of you, you in this room as I just look at your faces, I know some really difficult things have happened in your life. I know some very painful things have happened. I, I know about that, so I don't want to make a light of that. I don't want to be insensitive to that. Instead, I'm trying to say like, what if there was a way out of that? What if there was freedom? What if forgiveness was not primarily for the benefit of the person who offended us, but primarily for us? Because there's a prison. That's what Jesus is saying. We'll be, turned, we'll be sent over to a prison and tortured. 
That's what Paul wants us to see in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. And we'll look at these verses real quick. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Paul, in his typical, beautiful, gospel-centered fashion, this is what I love about verse, he actually starts out and gives us the indicative in verse 32. The indicative is saying, this is a gospel truth. This is a reality. This is the thing that God has done for you. And because God has done this, it's gonna actually make it possible for you to live out the imperative, the verse 32. So the indicative is, is that Christ has forgiven you. Christ has set you free. Christ has brought, bought you at a price with his costly blood and you are no longer under the dominion of sin. And because of that, there's a Holy Spirit living inside you. There's a new nature that you've received. You've been born again. You've been bought at as a price and you are now free to forgive. Because in our forgiveness, we are now given the ability to forgive. Because you've been forgiven, you're now given the ability to forgive. But what happens if we don't? Here are the tormentors that begin to rear their head, especially at us, as we are imprisoned by them. These things that often at first feel like a nice little pet that we'll nurse and we'll take care of, just a little sapling of bitterness, they actually mushroom over time and have cataclysmic effects in all of our life. So just a little bit of bitterness. And this bitterness, this sense of just like, man, my boss took credit for my work. He owes me an apology. My spouse owes me love. I'm going to be a little standoffish and harsh and critical with them next time we talk. My spouse owes me respect. They never appreciate me. They're not looking, just a little bit of bitterness. And we feel like almost entitled to that. Like, it's not a big deal. It's just a little bit of bitterness. It's not going to harm anyone. It's cute. It's like a little pet. Then over time, I mean, what does Jesus tell us as well? What, what begins in our hearts, what starts in our hearts, this anger eventually manifests itself in our words because out of the heart, the mouth begins to speak and slander begins to be the thing that we do. So what do we do? We take that little bit of bitterness and especially in church world, we're so good at this. We manifest it sometimes in prayer requests. Let me tell you my predicament. Let me, you know, it's, it's share time at home group and this person's gonna go for 25 minutes about all of their bitterness at this person at work or in their community or in their church or, or whoever. Or, hey, I just need to process this with you. I just need a sounding board. It's like, no, I just need to slander this person because they owe me and I, I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to a little bit of slander, right? That's not a big deal in comparison to what they did to me. They owe me. There's a debt-debtor posture that allows these things to take root. And it doesn't just stop there because what begins with our, with our heart and goes to our words eventually plays out in our lives. And that's what Paul's saying to us. Away from you along with all malice. Malice isn't a word we use a lot, right? A lot, right? Excuse me. It, but it, what it means is an intent, a desire, a passion to do evil. This is now at the point where, you know, if, if I can find a way to sabotage them, if I can find a way to undermine them, if I can find a way to humiliate them, I'm doing it. And I feel justified in doing it because after all, they owe me. And since they owe me a little bit of slander and a little bit of malice is just me settling the score. Bitterness is what happens when we refuse to forgive. And here's the thing about bitterness. Here's the thing about all of this is these things don't stay quarantined to just you and that person. Like nuclear waste, like we were talking about, they eventually seep out. You cannot compartmentalize this. 
I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've done marriage counseling and sat down with a couple and immediately you see that hurt and you see that wound. And because of that, now anger has settled in. You owe me. You owe me. And over time, that anger then begins to turn into a little bit of like, you know what? I'm not making the first move. We're divided. We're separating. We're moving out. We're getting divorced. It happens in communities. Happens in home groups. Happens in churches. Over 10,000 churches a year face divisions and splits. And a lot of it's because we have these debtor posture even toward those that we're in community with. Uh, I remember being in student ministry for years. You get that student who's just angry, just angry. And you scratch even just a little bit beneath the surface of that, just this thin veneer, and there's a lot of hurt. Mom, dad, I feel like you let me down. I feel like I didn't get something I was owed. I feel like I've been wronged. And they're having a debt-debtor relationship. Beneath that thin veneer of anger is a lot of hurt. And when we don't go to God, it begins to have its way with us. It begins to wreak havoc inside of our lives. And too often in the church community, particularly, we can indulge this because we're very sympathetic, empathetic, loving people. And so we find a friend or we encounter a friend or we're in community with people that are in that place of bitterness or in that place of hurt, in that place where they need to practice forgiveness. They're imprisoned. But yet we do, what do we do? We sympathize. And sympathy is good. I love how Nancy DeMoss puts it. She says, while sympathy is needed, is needed when someone experiences loss, sympathy provides relief and only forgiveness provides release. So it's great to be empathetic and understanding for those who are suffering and hurt and wounded. But our God is so big. We have such infinite resources at our disposal that we can push beyond sympathy and the relief that comes through it to encouraging them and shepherding them to release from that imprisonment. Another effect of this, if, if we let these things even have a, a presence in our heart and in our lives, is it chokes out our joy in Jesus. It chokes out. Do you see that? The king goes from this posture of like, I, I gave you everything. I had pity on you to calling him wicked. There's obviously some tension in that relationship, right? That's not, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure that one out. Wicked servant. Here's how Nancy DeMoss puts it. This is what she says, and I think it's a great quote. When we do this, we have stunted grace from flowing to us and from us. And this handicaps our capacities to have relationships with others and with God. This is why Jesus wanted us to pray that we would also forgive those who have trespassed against us. As hard as, as it is for us to forgive at times, the alternative is much worse. A person that does not forgive will eventually end up suffering way more from the consequences of not forgiving than possibly the wound of the original offense. Um, if you were to come over to my house and I was to, I mean, this is a really way out there scenario, okay? But let's, let's just stick with my Yucca Mountain thing from earlier. Let's just say I, I've got some nuclear waste in my living room and I've got to find a way to keep it contained. And I said, I've got a great idea. I'm going to put it in a Ziploc bag. 
This would be great, right? Ziploc bags, they hold everything. You can put it in there. They'll contain it. They'll hold it. And then I'm just going to kind of put it in my pantry. And that should solve it, right? There won't be any problems for my house. It won't disrupt my family. It won't ruin our relationships. It won't affect my community. It'll just be a little toxic waste in a Ziploc bag up in my pantry. You would look at me like, are you nuts? (laughs) Have you lost your mind? But yet a lot of us live life that way. That one relationship, that one circumstance, that one person, it bleeds over, it seeps over, it carries over into every other interaction in place. Because these things don't stay quarantined, they don't stay compartmentalized, they begin to shape and form us. And as we suppress that anger, it often manifests itself in more rage or depression. Many of the emotional struggles, even mental struggles that I think people often wrestle and deal with are linked and tethered to this issue of forgiveness because we're imprisoned and that imprisonment causes us to be tormented. Have you ever been tormented by something in your past? Wouldn't you love to be free of it? Rudy Tomjanovich uh, was the coach of uh, the Houston Rockets. And uh, a lot of you probably heard his name from then. He won some world championships with them. But prior to that, he was actually a player for them in 1977, four-time All-Star, really good basketball player, and uh, was having a great career. And uh, on December 9th, 1977, Rudy Tomjanovich and the Houston Rockets were playing the LA Lakers at at the Forum. And uh, in the second quarter, a fight broke out. Rudy Tomjanovich is the far end of the court. The fight's over here on the other side of the court. And Rudy goes running across the court. There's a player for the Los Angeles Lakers. His name was Kermit Washington. And he's a little bit in the scuffle, a little disoriented. And out of the side of his eye, all he sees is this red blur. And instinctually, he balls up his fist, turns around, and pile drives his face, uh, fist into the face of Rudy Tomjanovich, who's running full speed. They said you could have heard the thud of Rudy's head hitting the floor all throughout the forum. It was the equivalent of a 60-mile-an-hour car crash. Rudy Tomjanovich broke almost every bone in his face. His jaw to this day still slants a little bit to the left. He would have five reconstructive surgeries and miss the next two years of his playing career. Still to this day, suffers from hearing loss, and his tear ducts don't function. Imagine that moment. Imagine the, the bitterness, the rage, the anger that Rudy would feel entitled to have toward Kermit. And so it's fascinating. Years ago, I was reading an interview where Rudy was being into, uh, interviewed about the incident. And they said, have you forgiven Kermit Washington? Have you forgiven him? And Rudy said, I learned long ago that remaining angry and bitter is like drinking poison and hoping someone else dies. Friends, that's the truth. When we refuse to forgive, what Jesus is asking us to do here isn't because he's insensitive or he's minimizing what's happened to you or the the grievousness of the sin that's been done to you. In fact, he's clearly not. Otherwise, he wouldn't have even gone to the cross. But what he's saying is, "I, I don't want you to be in prison. I don't want you to be tormented. The devil always wins when we don't forgive. The devil always wins when we don't forgive. So last part, I want to close with just a few comments on on what's the way forward? How do we begin to walk forgiveness out? Um, As a caution to this, I want to say a few things that forgiveness is not. And I don't have time unless, you know, you guys want to stay here all afternoon to do a sermon on each of these. But here's a few things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not approving or diminishing sin. 
It doesn't mean you approve or diminish sin. Forgiveness is not enabling sin. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm your doormat. You continue to walk all over me and I take that. If you're being abused or in an abusive situation, Jesus is not asking you to stay in that and be, be taken advantage of over and over. Forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. Forgiveness only requires two people, you and God. Reconciliation requires three, you, God, and the other party. Forgiveness only requires you and God. And here's the thing, guys, as I said, a lot of us, we're gonna remain in that prison until we get that apology. And guess what? That apology might not come. And the saddest thing, the thing Jesus hates and doesn't want for you is to stay there. Forgiveness is also not trusting regardless. Forgiveness doesn't mean like, you know what? We're right back to where we were and I trust you to the same extent and level. Forgiveness is not a one-time moment. I'm not advocating forgive and forget. That's not what I'm saying. Forgiveness is not ceasing to feel the pain and forgiveness is not always reconciliation. Sometimes there are things done to us, things that have happened to us that the relationship doesn't come back together. But once again, here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness goes from like, I want your destruction. You owe me, where's my pound of flesh? To I want whatever God wants for you. Maybe that's blessing. Maybe that's a future. Maybe that's new life. But I can pray for you the way Jesus prays for his enemies. But I'm no longer wanting your destruction. I'm no longer wanting you to pay. You don't owe me. So how do we do that? How do we move forward with that? One, first, identify what you think has been taken from you. Identify what you think has been taken from you. What do you think has been taken? For some of you, maybe it's your reputation. Maybe someone has slandered you. Maybe someone has maligned you. Maybe someone has gossiped about you and you feel like your reputation has been taken. For some of you, maybe it's love. Maybe you had someone who you trusted yourself to. Maybe you have a spouse. Maybe you have an ex-spouse and you feel like they took that from you and it hurts. Maybe it's your childhood. Maybe your childhood was not what you thought it would be. Maybe it's a community. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a position. Maybe it's security. Maybe it's safety. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe just like in our parable, there was something taken from you. Identify what that is. And here's what I'd say, be specific. Sometimes we apologize and we hurt very generally and broadly. And then we kind of go like, okay, yeah, I'm good. I'll move on. But identify it. Fill in that sentence. What has been taken from you? Be specific. And then number two, and this is where Jesus, this is Jesus, okay? This is not me again. Cancel the debt. Cancel the debt. Make the decision. This is not a feeling. I'm not asking you to feel different. I'm not saying your feelings are illegitimate. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is, as you look upon the cross, as you see what Jesus has done for you, you cancel that debt, you make a decision, and then this becomes the place where you camp out and you return over and over again as you encounter Jesus, as you pray, as you seek the Lord, as you read the scriptures to say, Jesus, I have to make this decision over and over and over. And as he works it out in your life for your good and your joy, joy and you become more like Jesus, what felt so raw and painful and filled with anger and malice begins to die down some. Over time, as we hand that over in an act of faith to God, John Piper says this, Christianity does not make light of sin. Christianity, Jesus does not make light of sin. He does not make light what's been done to you or what you've done to others. He's not making light of it, the hurt, the abuse that you've experienced. On the contrary, it takes the sin against you so seriously. Jesus realized just how serious that grievance was that to make it right, God gave his son to suffer more 
than we could ever make anyone suffer for what they have done to us. Jesus suffered more than that person ever could. And this is where our countercultural radical ethic comes into play. We go from debt debtor people to grace upon grace upon grace upon grace people. This is the way of our kingdom. This is the way of our God. And here's what you do. Third, you refuse to hold the debt against them again. The debt's been canceled. I'm not holding that against you anymore. And that, that takes Jesus because that's a divine act. Forgiveness, I know a lot of you are like, man, this is crazy talk. (laughs) You don't know. And you're right, forgiveness is not natural. But our God's not natural, he's supernatural. (laughs) And because our God is supernatural, he can do things that are incredibly unnatural, such as forgive. This is only possible by the divine work of Jesus Christ in our lives. I'm just gonna say, I've said it uh, as many ways as I know how to say it, but let me just say it one more time. All issues of forgiveness are primarily rooted in what you truly believe about the cross. Our forgiveness issues are cross issues. For the greatest scandal, if you wanna talk scandals, the greatest scandal, the greatest unfair, unfair moment in human history, the ultimate, they're getting away with it moment was when Christ hung on a tree for you. That was the unfair moment. That was their getting away with it moment. That's the scandal of grace. And when this is grasped by us, there's nothing in turn we can't begin to forgive. So um, I wanna pray. I want you guys to join me in something, okay? Just come along with me as we do this. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to clench your fists and hold your fists clenched. And think, who, who's that person? What's that situation? What's that moment? What's that experience? What's that season where I feel like something was taken from me? What's the grudge you're holding on to? What's the thing you feel like you can't get past, that you're clenching, that you're holding so tight, that you're allowing to fester? And then pray this with me. Lord, I see at the cross, I lost my right not to forgive. And so while they've taken from me, fill in the blank, whatever that is, I can cancel that debt because of your great grace and love. And as you open your hand, say, Jesus, I need you to do a supernatural act. I need you to do a supernatural work in my heart to make that forgiveness true, to make it real, to see it transform me and to free me from any prison of bitterness and any tormenting of unforgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for loving us and going to the cross so that all of this is possible and that you would have your way and will with us. Amen. You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, 
please visit stonegate.church.